Thank you, Doug and musicians, for that great word through music. Um, one of the, I think, most powerful things we can do is take the scriptures and turn them into music and, and meditate on them together. So I'm really thankful when we get songs like that that have the scriptures so explicitly in them. Um, if you've got a Bible, turn it open to Psalm chapter 51. We'll have the text up on the screen, but it may be something that you want to look at, follow along in your own Bible. This morning we'll be looking at Psalm 51. It's a song of repentance. Uh, this semester at RUF, we are going through the Psalms together, and we're trying to answer this question of, how do I talk to God? How do I communicate with Him through the ups and downs of life? Um, and the Psalms are an important place for us to learn how to talk to God. We're calling this series Songs for the People, and it's based largely off of uh, what Athanasius said. He said, uh, he summed up the importance of the Psalms by saying that when, while most of Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speak for us. And down through the centuries, the people of God have found Psalms, the language of prayers and complaint, trust and doubt, petition and thanks, which has nourished their relationship with God. So we're hoping that as we study the Psalms, it will nourish our relationship with God as well. So this morning, we're going to take a look at Psalm 51, a song of repentance. So please pray with me, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, uh, we do come to you this morning as people who don't know how to talk to you. We don't know how to come to you. Uh, sin has so corrupted our hearts and our minds um, that we don't know how to be with you. We don't know how to talk to you. And even worse yet, we don't think that you want to talk to us. That we're so uh, stuck in our guilt and our shame that we can't even imagine what it would be like to be with you and to speak to you. Much less find forgiveness from you. Um, this morning as we come to this text, Father, we need your grace and your loving kindness to wash over us. Uh, we need you to help us to see you as a good father that loves us and wants to be with us. We also need you to expose our sin, because it is our sin that is keeping us from experiencing your love and your grace and your joy. We need you to be honest with us, Father. Like a good friend, point out the mustard on our chins. Like a faithful surgeon, open our hearts and repair us. Like a good doctor, put the healing balm of the gospel into our souls. Father God, we need you. We need you to speak through your word right now by your Holy Spirit. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. In the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, a friend of mine once said that when he's doing marriage counseling, sometimes the relationship gets so toxic, it gets so bad, that he doesn't know what to do. That he'll be in these counseling sessions, and the husband and the wife, they can't, they can't even talk to each other civilly. And so whenever it gets to that point when things are so bad they can't get anywhere, he likes to ask him this one simple question. When was the last time you felt loved? When was the last time you experienced love? Not just from God or your spouse, but from anyone. Uh, and one time he was with a couple, and he asked that question to the wife. And the wife said, the last time I felt really loved was after a fight with my husband. We, we got so mad and angry at each other that I began screaming at him profanity. And then as soon as I realized what I had done, I ran up to my room, 
I laid in my bed and I started to cry. I fell asleep, and when I woke up, I found myself in the arms of my husband, patting my head, gently, tenderly, caring for me in love. That was the last time I felt loved. This morning, uh, as we come to Psalm 51, what I think we need and what we want is that kind of love. That's the desire that we come to this psalm with. We want a love that is never stopping, never giving up, always and forever. A love that is so patient and kind and gentle and tender that when we've blown it, we know that there's someone there who loves us and that is waiting to hold us in their arms and speak tenderly to us. Repentance is this surprising pathway back to God's love and that kind of joy. When you think about repentance, what do you think of? And most people probably think of uh, street preachers shouting, repent, or you're going to go to hell. Or maybe we think of posters that say repent on them, that they're being held up at rallies. Or maybe we even think of billboards that you see on the highway, repent and believe. What I want you to see this morning, what I think we see in Psalm 51 is that that repentance is your loving Heavenly Father calling you back to His arms. And Jesus, your Savior, calling you back to Him. Repentance is the process and a pathway to experiencing God's love and His joy. It's, It's the process back, it's the pathway back to His love when you've blown it. When you've just absolutely made a wreck of everything. Repentance is the way back to that love. It's the pathway back to God's love whenever you wake up every morning and you feel cold-hearted and angry and frustrated and impatient with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers. It's the pathway back to God's love when you feel lost and confused and when you feel unlovable. Repentance is the surprising pathway back into the arms of the one who loves you and will forgive you and cleanse you and change you and sing over you. That's what David experiences in Psalm 51, and we see it from the very beginning. We're going to take this into small chunks and really try to chew on it together. If you look at the heading, Psalm 51 starts out with this heading, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. So there's a backstory here, right? We know from 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12 that David writes this psalm after Nathan confronts him uh, at a time whenever uh, David and Israel were at a, a small war. Uh, David had ascended to the throne. Israel had subdued most of the land. They had a small war going on. David sent his men to go fight the war for him, and he stayed back. And while he stayed back, uh, one day he, he climbed up to his rooftop, which was not uncommon in those days. And as he looked out on the rooftop, he saw Bathsheba bathing. She was doing nothing wrong. She was uh, purifying herself. He saw her, and he wanted her. So he sent a servant to go get her. He, the servant brought her back to him. 
Uh, he committed a, a grievous sin by sleeping with her. He sent her away. She became pregnant, sent him a note, says, I'm pregnant. Then David committed another grievous sin. He began to try to cover up his sin. So he sent for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who was fighting in the war. Brought Uriah back. Tried to get Uriah to go sleep with Bathsheba to cover up the sin. He wouldn't do it because he was a man of integrity. The second night, he tried to get Uriah drunk so he would go sleep with his wife. He wouldn't do it because he was a man of integrity. So eventually, David had Uriah killed. Sent him to the front line where the fighting was the fiercest. And he was murdered. David thought he'd covered up his sin, but God, God did the sending this time, and God sent Nathan the prophet to David to confront him. Um, Nathan the prophet told David a parable about a man who had a sheep that he loved and he cared for, that a great t- king uh, had a guest come over, and he stole that man's sheep. He slaughtered it so that he could provide for his guest. And when David was enraged and angry and furious at this story, Nathan said, you're the man. You have sinned against God and despised him. David makes a very simple confession. He says, I have sinned. And this psalm is David's outpouring of repentance when he has blown it in the worst possible way. It's his pathway back to God's love. And the first thing I want you to see in verses 1 and 2 is that repentance starts with understanding God's grace. That the pathway back to God's love and joy starts with understanding that God has been gracious and kind with you in Christ Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What does David start with? Does he start with his performance? Does he start with his, uh, by wallowing in his shame and his guilt? Does he start with sending out his spiritual resume to God? No. He starts by calling on the character of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That steadfast love is God's covenant love. It's a covenant love that God made with, with his people in the Old Testament. It's his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. It's the love that comes from God's promise that is unbreakable and unchanging. David calls on that promise, and he says, on the basis of your goodness and your grace, I need you to blot out my transgressions. I need you to, but I have these spiritual debts, I've broken your laws, and I need you to clear them off the books, Lord. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. I have guilt. I have shame. I feel polluted. I'm corrupted because of my sin. I need to be cleansed. By, he's saying, by your grace and your mercy, God, would you clear my guilty record? Would you wash away the shameful stain of my sin? Uh, Sharon and I were watching a movie last night. And uh, in the movie, there's, uh, there's an action movie. So there's a damsel and there is uh, the hero guy, and the damsel and the hero guy are fighting the bad guys, and the, uh, the damsel, the lady, she goes in, and she helps the, the good guy kill the bad guys. But she's not, you know, she's not the normal, you know, she's not an action hero. She's not used to, to, to participating in the fighting and the killing and all that stuff. So she's a part of the, the killing 
He sends her away, says, go to the hotel room. He takes the bodies. He hides the bodies. And when he comes back to the room, he finds her in the shower, fully clothed, just sitting underneath the water. The shower's running on top of her. She's just sitting there. And he says, what are you doing? And she said, I have blood on my hands and I can't get it off. I'm trying to wash myself. That's what we experience in our sin. We experience the the shameful, stainful guilt of sin that covers us. We feel polluted. And what do we need? We need the shower of God's grace and mercy there to wash us and cleanse us. And the good thing, the good news of the gospel is that it's there. That in Jesus Christ, God has done everything to forgive us and cleanse us from our sins. And it's that basis on which David comes to God and experiences his love and his joy. As we just sang about, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So the first thing we see is that repentance starts with understanding God's grace. And it's that truth that allows us to confront the hideous truth about our sins. Look at verses 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. When David sees the goodness of God's grace and mercy and kindness, against that backdrop, he sees the hideous nature of his sins. And the first thing he does is he confesses those sins. He lays it out there. For I know my transgressions. He knows them. He owns them. He doesn't blame them on somebody else. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't talk around the issue. He doesn't try to cover things up. He just says, I know my sin. Why? And my sin is ever before me. He's honest about it because it's out in front of him. Right? To be before you means to have it out in front of you. He sees it. The the first thing we have to do to repent and experience God's love is just to be honest about our sin. It's to see it. It's to have an awareness of it that is there before us. We all need a Nathan in our life. We need a friend that loves us and knows us and is willing to come up to us and say, you've got mustard on your chin. You've got sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. I was at an event yesterday, and at at the event, I made a peanut butter sandwich, and I, uh, peanut butter and honey, right, because peanut butter alone is just a little sticky. So peanut butter and honey, I make the sandwich, I eat the sandwich, and I'm, I'm standing there talking to Thomas Tower, and Thomas talks to me for a little bit, and I had talked to a lot of other people before this, right? And Thomas and I are talking, and Thomas goes, hey, Shane, you got some peanut butter right there on your chin. And I go and wipe all my face, and sure enough, I'm like, I have peanut butter, thank you. I said, Thomas, you are a good friend. <laughs> Nobody else told me about that peanut butter. Do you have a friend like that? If not, let's, let's build friendships. Let's be a community of people that can lovingly look at each other and go, you've got peanut butter on your chin. Because that's the only way we're going to experience God's love and grace. We have, to, we have to see our sin so that we can confess it. David sees it, and David knows that the problem is not something out there. 
The problem is something in here. And that problem has caused a rift between he and God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He said, my sin is first and foremost against God. Right? Now, what that does not mean is that he didn't sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, because he did. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't need to go apologize to Uriah's family and Bathsheba's family and Bathsheba, because he does. But what he's saying is, all sin against God's image, which people were made in, is ultimately a sin against God. Whether it's a personal sin against yourself or it's a sin against somebody else. That when we sin, we sin against God. We sin against him. When we, when we sin, we disobey his good laws, we pervert his good desires, and we destroy his good image. And so until we come to the reality that we have sinned against him, then we're not coming to a reality of true repentance. And we have to be honest about where that sin comes from. It comes from us. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin, but did my mother conceive me? And you want truth in here. David was a liar. He lied, and that lie didn't come from out there. It came from in here, right? If I, if I went over right now, and I knocked over the communion trays, and all the wine and all the juice spilled out, right, they would spill out because there's wine, there's juice in the jars, right? When we sin, we sin because there's sin in us. There are things around us that cause us to sin. They, they knock us over. But when it comes out, it's something that comes from inside. So you've got you've to be honest about where this sin is coming from. Uh, a few years ago, uh, at our old church, there was a man who committed adultery. He got on the internet. He searched out someone he didn't know. He rendezvoused with that person at a, play, a random place. He had an affair. We found out about it. One of our elders was talking to him. They were having a conversation. And in this conversation, this man looked at our elder and said, you know, I'm just not the kind of person who would do that. It's not really who I am. And our elder just looked at him and said, that's exactly who you are. You're the kind of person that would find some random person on the internet and go sleep with them. And until you're honest with your sin, you'll never change. Until we're honest with ourselves and we commit a sin and we say, that's who I am. That kind of sin lives in me. And maybe not who I am in Christ. I may be adopted son or daughter of the king, but I committed that sin. And it's God's radical grace that I need to change me. But the first thing we've got to do is we've got to be honest about the depth of our sinfulness. And it's that kind of honesty in the context of God's grace that can bring the deep transformation of our hearts that David longs for in the rest of this passage. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. What does David want here? He doesn't just want to be a better person. He doesn't just want some good advice so he can just make a few little changes to his life. He doesn't just want to tweak a few things. He doesn't want a teacher. He doesn't want a coach. He doesn't want a blog. 
He wants the Lord of the universe to come into his life and radically rechange him from the ground up. Listen, listen to those petitions. He wants his guilt and shame to be removed, verse 7. In verse 8, he wants the bones that God has broken to shout with joy and rejoice with gladness. Friends, we are going to experience guilt and shame when we sin. Don't be surprised. If you feel bad about your sin, don't be surprised by that. That's actually a good thing. Like, that actually means that you have a conscience. And that means that God loves you. Hebrews says that a father disciplines those that he loves. And no discipline feels good in the moment, but it yields a fruit of righteousness. It, it yields joy and gladness and rejoicing. Verse 9, David wants his sins removed and unseen. Verse 10, he wants a new heart with a submissive spirit. Verse 11, he wants the presence of God and God's spirit. And verse 12, he wants the joy that comes from being saved and sustained by God. David knows that his problem is much, much deeper than just acquiring some good advice. He needs a radical transformation of his entire life. Um, in the, uh, one of the Chronicles of Narnia books, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a boy named Eustace Scrub. And Eustace Scrub is, he's just a, he's just a pain. Right? He, he, he complains. He whines. He grumbles. And there's a, in, in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, they're looking for the seven lords of Narnia. They're, they're traveling on the ship to go find them and, and save them. And they go to one island, and Eustace wanders off. And when he wanders off, he finds a dragon's lair. He finds the dragon's lair. He, he finds the dragon's treasure. He lays on that treasure. He falls asleep. And, and Lewis says that he dreams all these dragon thoughts. And when he wakes up in the morning, he realizes that he's a dragon. He's become a dragon, covered in scales. He's got a, a, a bracelet around his arm, and that bracelet's pinching. It's hurting him. So uh, eventually, um, Aslan finds him. Aslan leads him to this pool, and Aslan says that if you get into this pool, you can be cleansed. But the first thing you've got to do is you've got to take off the scales. So Eustace begins to, like, pull off the scales. He's trying to pull them off, and every time he pulls them off, they begin to grow back. He can't pull them off fast enough or deep enough to keep them from, from coming back. And so Aslan, the, the God figure in the book, says, let me do it. And Aslan takes his claws. He reaches deep inside of his skin and begins to tear off those scales. And, and Yusuf says that it was so deep he thought it was going to kill him. It hurt. But whenever Aslan was done with him, he looked in the pool and he wasn't a lion a dragon anymore. He was a boy. And he, he got into the pool and experienced the cleansing, renewing waters of the pool. That's what happens in repentance, that God digs his claws into us. And he rips out the sin in our life so that we can experience the refreshing wonders of his grace and mercy to us. Is that what you want? Be honest when you come to the Lord. Do you just want some good advice? Do you just want to be cleaned up and look respectable? Or do you want radical transformation that leads to a changed life. Because that's what God wants and that's what he offers. And that's what gives you the joy of your salvation. That's what ex helps you experience God's love and his kindness. So David has, has shown us that the repentance starts with believing in God's grace. And then it leads us to being honest about our sin. 
It requires us to see, it leads to a radical transformation. It requests a radical transformation. And then lastly, repentance brings the joy of true worship. Look at verses 13 through 17. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God, O you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David is saying that after I've gone through this process of believing in your grace and seeing seeing my sin and being radically transformed, then I can go to worship. I can worship rightly. Then... I can teach others. Then I can offer praise and sacrifice that is honoring to you because it's, it's come with a heart transformation, right? This is one of the reasons why when we come into the worship service, we come because God has called us by his grace and kindness. We sing praises to him because he deserves it. But then what's the next thing we do? We confess our sin. Because like when we come into this place, we don't just think that we're coming here for a good teaching and a little singing, although this happened. And some, and some good handshakes. We come in here and we meet with the Lord of the universe. The Lord of the universe comes in here and meets with us. This is a supernatural interaction with the most holy, pure, powerful being that's ever existed and ever will exist. So what do we do? We confess our sin. And we receive God's grace. That frees us up to love and worship God with a broken and contrite heart. So worship starts with repentance. When we walk through those doors, we come in a spirit of repentance. When we open our Bible, when we sit down to pray, it starts with repentance. It starts with asking God to, by his graciousness and mercy and kindness, to forgive us and allow us to, to receive his love and his grace to us. We need to do that. Any, any time I think we, we engage in the means of grace, we need to come in a spirit of repentance. And maybe, maybe we need to go every door, every time we walk into a room or to a new door, a new place, and we see new people, um, maybe we need to walk into those areas with repentance. I was really convicted this week about a, a place that I go uh, on a regular basis, you know, on campus, um, in the gym, in restaurants. I was really convicted that when I walk into those places, I sort of just assume that everybody around me is a non-Christian. And then I found out that some of the people that I've gotten to know in those places actually really do love Jesus and go to church and worship on a regular basis. And I just thought, man, you self-righteous fool. How dare you think that you're the only one that worships Jesus? One of the hard parts about being a pastor is you actually have to, like, apply the text to yourself before you preach it. And I did this scary thing of, like, actually asking God to do this in my life and show me my sin. And you know what he did? He did it. He showed me that I'm a self-righteous fool. And that I judge people. But he also showed me 
his kindness and his grace and his forgiveness. He showed me that I'm much more sinful and broken than I ever imagined, but in Christ I'm much more loved and accepted than I ever dared to hope. There's a story in the New Testament in Luke 7 where Jesus uh, goes to a party at a Pharisee's house. Pharisee's name is Simon. Simon invites Jesus over for this party. Um, when, he, when Jesus comes to the party, apparently Simon didn't do any of the traditional things that he was supposed to do to welcome Jesus and show him love. Well, at some point during the, the dinner, a woman walks in. And this woman is a notorious sinner. They say that she is a, a woman of the city, which means she's probably a prostitute. She comes in. She finds Jesus. She stands behind him. She begins to weep and cry. She falls at his feet. She cries on his feet. She kisses his feet. She cleans his feet with her hair. Then she takes an incredibly expensive uh, uh, jar of oil or perfume, and she pours it over his feet. And Simon looks at Jesus and says, do you know who she is? Self-righteousness. He's a Pharisee, right? He, he, he's kept all the laws. He's even made up new laws to keep. It's his job to keep the laws and to make sure that he's pure and that everybody around him is pure. And he just can't imagine that if Jesus was a real prophet, that he would ever let this notorious sinner touch his feet. And Jesus looks at Simon and says, Simon, let me tell you a parable. Let me tell you a story. Um, there was a moneylender who had two people who owed him debts. One owed him 50 denarii. The other owed him 500 denarii. And he decided to forgive both of them. Now you tell me which person would love him more. And Simon says, well, I suppose the person who has forgiven the greater debt. And Jesus says, you have supposed rightly. This woman loves much because she has been forgiven much. When I came in, you didn't offer me any oil. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't do any of the things that she has done. She loves me. She greeted me in this way. She worshiped me and served me because she knows how much she's been forgiven. And he looks at the woman and says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, how could God be a just, righteous, and holy God and forgive a prostituting woman and offer to forgive a self-righteous Pharisee by just proclaiming forgiveness? Jesus could do that because he knew he was going to pay for those sins on the cross. That in the future, he was going to take the Pharisee's sins and the woman's sins, and he was going to take those sins onto himself go to the cross, die for those sins, raise for those sins, and sit in heaven so that he could offer forgiveness and newness of life to both the Pharisee and the sinful woman. And so the story ends with sort of a hanging question. Will the Pharisee realize how much he's been forgiven, repent, and receive all of God's goodness and graciousness, or will he continue to have a shallow view of sin and a shallow view of God's love? And that's the question that God poses to us. He who's been forgiven much loves much. If you press into repentance and you see how much God has forgiven you, if you see all the ways in which you have rebelled against him and rejected him and and rejected others in self-righteousness, if you will lean into that and receive it, 
That's the pathway back to experiencing God's love and joy. The, the gospel is so upside down. The way up is down. The way to love and joy is through humility. It's through facing your sin and being honest about it. And it's there where Jesus offers the gospel. There's good news. If you're sitting there this morning and you're like, I'm the Pharisee. I've had a shallow view of sin my whole life. I've been cold-hearted. I've been angry. I've been frustrated. I've compared myself to those notorious sinners. There's good news. Jesus offers you forgiveness. He offers you grace and kindness. He offers you loving arms that want to hold you and caress you. And if you are the sinful woman, if you have blown it, if you've been sexually immoral, if you've been an alcoholic, if you've committed adultery and had an affair and been divorced, if you've murdered, the gospel's for you. That's the scandal of the gospel. A, a student came up to me after RUF and I, after I preached the sermon, and she said, do you think God could forgive somebody of murder? I said, yeah, that's the scandal of the gospel. He not only can, but he does. Jesus says, anyone who hates his neighbor in his heart has already committed murder. Friends, let's press into that. That's the way to joy and love and kindness and growth. It's by receiving God's grace and kindness and repentance. So let's pray that God, by his spirit, would help us to do that and experience his love again. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, what is there to say? We have sinned. We have broken your good laws. We have perverted your good desires. And we have destroyed your good image. Please forgive us. We thank you for providing a way to that forgiveness through Christ Jesus. We thank you that you've been so loving and kind to us that while we were in the shower wallowing in our sin, crying out for grace, you climbed in with us to wash us. We pray that you do that now, God. We pray that you would wash us, cleanse us, renew us, fill us with your spirit. Show us our sin so that we might see your grace. Radically transform us the way you radically transformed David. And restore us to true, good, and right worship through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.